0: Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Zvi Hirschfeld, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello everyone, and welcome to another podcast. Believe it or not, we are up to Parshat Vayeshev. I want to remind all of you at home that since we do these a few weeks early, three or four weeks early, that we in Israel right now are in the middle of uh, a very scary, difficult, challenging time. We hope and we pray that by the time all of you listen to this, things will be much better, and hostages will be returned, and our security will be returned, and all these great things will be happening. But right now, we're in the middle, and of course it's going to come up. It's going to be present in our tone, in the way we're thinking about things, because that's what Torah is. It reflects on our situation as we live it. So I just want to remind you of that fact. I am thrilled to welcome my colleague, teacher, friend, former boss, my Coffee friend. drinking mate. Coffee drinking mate, Daniel Reifman. Welcome, Daniel. Good to be here, Tsvi. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you. So. In this Parsha, we sort of encounter this dual narrative, right? The Yosef, the Joseph narrative. But there's this other narrative that we skipped when I was in seventh grade, by the way, because it was seen as uh, PG-13, maybe. Salacious, scandalous. Scandalous, salacious. Well, those are very good words. The Judah and Tamar story, Yudah and Tamar. But that's where you want to focus us. And uh, let's get right into it. What do you think are the general contours of the story? When is it happening? Where is it happening? And I guess it's point we'll think about why you think it's so significant within the wider scope of Sefer Brishi to the book of Genesis.
1: Yeah, it happens to be one of my favorite stories in Tanakh. And that sets a pretty high bar since I love learning Tanakh. According to the text, it's situated in between the time that Joseph is taken captive, sold by his brothers, and the time that the brothers initially set out for Egypt during the famine. It becomes clear from the story that that couldn't all be true. The time frame of the story is too long to fit within that span of time, but that's where the text situates it. What happens in the story is that Yehuda leaves his family in circumstances that are not entirely clear. Akos gets married, has three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, and then his oldest son gets married to a woman named Tamar. Er is deemed to be wicked by God. God kills him. And then Yehudah does an interesting thing. He says to his son, Onan, the second in line, He says to Onan, okay, your turn. Your brother has died childless, and now you are obligated to marry your sister-in-law in order to have children and continue your brother's line. Okay. This is a mitzvah that we find later on in the Torah in the book of Dvarim. There's a lot of interesting commentary on Sefer Brashid as a whole, as to what extent our forefathers and foremothers kept the mitzvot. But the text never says that they keep any of the mitzvot, except for this one. This is the only mitzvah, the only commandment that's explicitly mentioned later in the Torah that shows up in Sefer Brashid.
0: And it's striking, the text nor the the characters never think, wow, where's this coming from? Or this is so unusual. Or what do you mean the brother is gonna marry the widow of his brother? In other words, this seems, correct me if I'm wrong, it's presented as normal behavior. The brother dies, and the understanding is that the next brother in line will indeed, whatever that means, to continue his brother's line. Yehuda expects it. It seems like uh, the second brother expects it, and Tamar expects it. You might even say it's part of the convention of the times.
1: Yes, it was absolutely the convention of the times. That's an important thing to appreciate. It is a mitzvah the Book of Dvarim, which we'll get to in a minute, talks about the fact that when a man dies childless and leaves a widow, that the brother is supposed to marry her and to carry on his line, to have children that will then be called after at least the oldest child will be considered the child of the deceased brother. But it's not unique to the Torah. This is something that existed in many, many cultures throughout the ages. Certainly in the ancient world, this was a very common custom. Again, the parameters are a little different in different societies, but in general, there was some sort of custom for a widow, typically when her husband died childless, to marry another male member of her husband's family
0: in order to remain part of the family and to carry on the lineage of her deceased husband. What's well, interesting, in your statement, we'll come back to you on tomorrow in a minute, but just sort of understand the sort of the general theme of this uh, commandment or at that time, ancient practice. You said two things. Number one was to take care of the widow that she stays in the family. Okay, I didn't actually say take care of the widow. It's true, she stayed in the family maybe it was to take care of the widow okay so you're you're getting me to my next point Uh, that the you're saying that the primary reason here is you're doing something for the deceased brother that's right that's the explicit reason that's given in the torah and that's the
1: explicit reason that's given here in brashit Yehuda says to his second son onan marry tamar and you will establish the lineage of your deceased brother
0: and so the idea is that No one should die without descendants, I guess. That's right. Therefore, the brother is literally going to stand in the place of the deceased brother to such an extent that his child or children that he's going to have with this widow will in many ways not be his. They will be his brother's child.
1: Yes. There's an element of selflessness, both in his marrying his sister-in-law, who he hasn't had any kind of relationship up, up until now, there's no reason to assume that he wants to marry his sister-in-law, and the fact that at least the oldest child will not technically be his.
0: It will be considered to be
1: his deceased brother's child.
0: So the modern reader looks at this, and especially the way we think of what it means to get married and have a relationship, right? That we see all these things as emerging, out of the two individuals, their desire to build something together, their relationship with each other. And here the Torah comes along and speaks of this. It has nothing to do with that. No one asks whether they like each other. Nobody asks whether they've gotten along. The issue is not them. The issue is this deceased brother who needs to be kept in the story somehow. It's a very different way of thinking about marriage and family that i think we as modern westerners it's not what's normal for us
1: entirely different we have to put ourselves in the mindset of a patriarchal society where uh, social structures were dependent on the clan and the individual was seen as, first and foremost, as a member of the clan of the broader family, and not necessarily in terms of their own individual choices, which isn't, of course, to say that individuals didn't make choices based on what they wanted. Obviously, they did, men and women. But you had a responsibility to the family, and the family, in turn, had a responsibility to you. The notion of wanting somebody to carry on your line was enormously powerful. And we see this throughout Safer Brashit. We see this really throughout Tanakh. This is a concern for men and for women in uh, the parsha a few weeks ago when sarah turns to avraham and says i don't have any children take my maid servant Hagar and maybe through her literally it says i will be built ulai banami mena Sarah sees Hagar, again, Hagar takes her place as a potential way
0: for her to have a lineage. So it's it's an ancient model of surrogacy is what we're really Uh, saying here. Yes,
1: yes. So in that case with Sarah and Hagar, it's an ancient model of surrogacy. And in this case with Aaron Onan, in some ways, it's the same thing.
0: So... We're going to have to come back to this, I think, because I think this idea of the individual and the family and the nation and the priorities we carry, I think, could be something significant that we want to think about. And maybe it's significant here in this story as well. So, why do you think it features here as such an important element in the life of Yehuda and this story? Like, you could look at this and say, this is just sort of the window dressing to get us to the exciting part where Yehuda ends up having relations with his daughter in law right? But it's not. You're suggesting that this interaction, this requirement of the brother to build his deceased brother's line, is actually an essential piece of what's happening in this story.
1: So I think, in order to understand that, we need to go to the section of the book of Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, that talks about Yibum. Yibum is this practice of what is called leveret marriage. Levir is the brother in law in uh, Latin. Leveret marriage is where the brother in law would marry the wife of his deceased brother to carry on the line.
0: Well, they levirate marriage like phylacteries is one of those great examples where translating something into English helps no <laughs> A word you only know because you've learned Torah. Right. Apparently, the word
1: levirate featured in the Scripps National spelling bee a couple of years ago. Wow. Well, you would have done well, Daniel. The... Mitzvah of Yibum features in the book of Dvarim, chapter 25, uh, beginning in verse 5. It says very simply, the brother should marry his sister-in-law and carry on the family line. But then there's a fascinating feature of this law. What happens if the brother-in-law doesn't want to marry his sister-in-law? But perfectly understandable. Well, Usually, when there's a mitzvah, we say, well, sorry, you don't want to do it. Too bad. This is, I think, the one and only mitzvah in the Torah where the Torah says, oh, actually, there's a way out. The woman goes up to the city elders. The woman goes, she complains, she says, he's supposed to marry me in order to carry on my dead husband's line. Uh, He doesn't want to do it. And then after this, the elders speak to the brother of the deceased. He really doesn't want to marry her. And then we have an entire ritual, which is the opt-out ritual called chalitza. Chalitza literally means taking off the shoe. She approaches the brother in public and says, you don't want to marry me. You don't want to carry on your brother's line. She takes off his shoe. She spits before him essentially curses him. She says, This degrading ritual where she takes off his shoe and spits at him should be done to anybody who doesn't want to build the house of his brother.
0: Well, you know, there's something about the image of appearing shoeless, right, in front of a crowd or in front of a court or at the gate of the city, this idea that you're, I feel like it almost renders you like childlike and impotent because without your shoes, you can't go anywhere. She's publicly shaming him. This is shaming, right? And the Torah says, this is what's supposed to happen as a way you think of incentivizing the brother who's on the fence to actually lean into this and do what he's quote-unquote supposed to do. And yet, which is which, you made the point earlier, even though you could argue the Torah prefers it, the Torah gives him an out. Okay,
1: so a couple of interesting things here, if we tie this back to the book of Bereshi. The Torah says he has an out, but actually in Sefer Bereshi, Yehudah turns to his son and doesn't present him with another option. He said, you've got to do this. Did they have the institution of Halitza? Did such a thing exist? We don't know, but it's presented as the only thing to do. It's a done deal. Yeah, and of course, Onan doesn't want to do it, and Onan famously refuses to give his seed to Tamar, and God is furious with him and kills him as well, leaving the third brother as the one to, to take over. Now, Yehuda, looking on this from the outside, says, uh-oh, two of my sons have died because of this woman. He blames her, and then he says, oh, you know what, Sheila is next in line, but he's too young. Why don't you go back to your father's, he says to Tamar, why don't you go back to your father's house and wait till Sheila grows up and then he'll be the third brother in line. Here's where the really fascinating feature of the story comes in. Tamar sees as time goes on that Yehuda has no intention of giving Sheila to her, and she takes matters into her own hands to make long story short. She dresses up as a prostitute, she waits on the road where she sees Yehuda is passing. She seduces him, uh, he wants her services. he gives her certain personal items as a collateral. He sleeps with her, and then she disappears. He sends somebody back to give her the personal items that he promised her, and she's not there and he's like. Uh Uh-oh. Couple months later. Word gets to him that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. He says oh, she slept around. He says... And she technically, to... she still kind of belongs to his family. Technically, she still belongs to his
0: family. She can't sleep around. That's That right. would be a form of adultery. That
1: would be a form of adultery. And he says she has to be punished. In fact, according to the Torah, she should be put to death. She's going to be put to death. And she sends words to Yehuda, sending him his personal items, saying... Anohi hara To the man who these things belongs, I have become pregnant. I remember saying... Somebody saying that the, the personal items were uh, his staff and his signet ring and his cloak. Essentially, the equivalent now of your cell phone, your driver's license, and your passport. <laughs> uh, everything, basically. E- everything. And she says, Hakerna. Take a look, see who these things belong to. He, of course, sees them. And now he has a choice. He can fess up, or he could play dumb and try to cover it up. And the fascinating moment, the critical moment of the story, is when he says, many, oh, she's right, I was wrong.
0: You know, just before we, we move on to what this says about Yehuda, the fact, the irony that she is more committed to the sexual relationship being in the context of serving family and clan than he is. He's looking just for a sexual encounter. She's the one who only wants a sexual encounter that furthers the broader, bigger picture of the family life. Like, it's very ironic. He, in withholding his son, and then also engaging in a sexual act outside of the tribal familial context, he's really undermining the values that he's supposed to protect, right? He's putting his own needs... Ahead of the familial, national, whatever term you want to use.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's fascinating about the way that the law of Yibum resonates with the story is we see the same thing in the law of Yibum. When the brother in law doesn't want to take responsibility when he's thinking about what he wants and not about what's good for the family, it's his sister in law who comes and accuses him. She's the one who takes the initiative, just as in this story, it's Tamar who takes the initiative when she sees that Yehuda is not doing his obligation to give her, his last son, she holds him responsible.
0: And so his great moment then, if I'm understanding your reading, what makes him special in the story is when he's able to say she's more righteous than I, instead of acting on impulse to cover up his own shame and embarrassment, once admit he ends up having to admit he slept with his own daughter-in-law. Who knows all the different taboos that that might have been breaking, right? Because if that had been possible, he doesn't need his younger son. He would have married her himself. So obviously there's something wrong about that. He went to a prostitute. I mean, there are all these things that you would imagine he'd want to cover up. And instead, he owns it.
1: He owns it. In the law of Yibum, the woman, the sister-in-law, shames the brother. And we're kind of hoping, as you said, that he'll get the hint and do what he's supposed to do. Tamar doesn't really give Yehuda that opportunity. She doesn't really have that opportunity. And therefore, she actually orchestrates the sexual encounter. But yes, Yehuda, unlike the brother, fesses up and takes responsibility and said, I was wrong. She was right.
0: So help us understand then in this story why Yee-Boom and what Yehudah does and doesn't do and then does. Why is this featured here? We're we're interrupting a pretty amazing story of brothers selling a brother, and we can't help doing this podcast now being sold off into captivity, I am sure resonates with us in a way that it would not have resonated before October 7th, right? The idea that someone's being taken away from their family and sent to who knows where with the father never knowing uh, what happened to the son. And this whole narrative of unfolding with Yosef, and yet the Torah turns its camera on what looks to be a very isolated familial episode with Yehuda and his daughter-in-law and his own sons.
1: So, when you think about the significance of Yibbum here in this story, you realize that Yibum has a very important message. As we said before, it's the only mitzvah, I think, in the Torah that involves a choice. There's a mitzvah to do, there's a commandment, there's an obligation, but there's also an out. And that's an incredibly powerful message. You have a responsibility. You could take the out, but you as an individual now have to choose to do the right thing. It's not God coming and saying, here is the mitzvah, do it or else. It's saying, here's a responsibility that you have. It's true you have a choice, but we are encouraging you and relying on you to do the right thing.
0: And why give us a choice, do you think? Like, what's significant? As opposed to, you don't have a choice about Shabbat or eating pig or stealing. Why here do you think that the Torah gives us a choice?
1: That's an interesting question. This is a very personal matter and there are lots of reasons, I think, legitimate reasons that the brother-in-law wouldn't want to do it. Of course, there are also reasons that the sister-in-law might not want to do it. She might say, I don't want him. And then the chalitza ritual exists as an out for other reasons. I should mention, of course, nowadays, we don't actually do this. We always use the out because we don't exist in the same kind of family structure. And therefore, it's probably not a good idea for the brother-in-law systematically to marry his dead brother's wife. It would wife. make
0: Thanksgiving dinner awkward, I you, think, say to that say the again. least.
1: But I think that its significance in terms of the story of Yehuda is unbelievably powerful because the message of Yiboum is you have a choice and you have a responsibility to make the right choice. And that's exactly what happens to Yehuda here. What the story represents through this whole drama of Yiboum is that Ruvain has a responsibility. It's a responsibility that he has essentially not taken up to this point in the story. He was the brother who suggested they sell Yosef into slavery. It was better than letting him starve, I guess, but he still suggests they sell him into slavery. And when Yaakov is mourning the loss of Yosef, he doesn't step forward and say, oh, actually, we just sold him and he's still alive. The story then is a critical moment because Yehuda comes to realize that he has a responsibility, and in the continuation of this week's parsha into next week's parsha, we see Yehuda step up to the plate and take responsibility in a way that is just unbelievably moving.
0: You know, it's interesting because Reuven is the one who he wants to save Yosef, and what you're pointing out is that yes, he wants to save him. He says, "Put him in the pit. Well, he, I'm going to come back for him," but he doesn't own up afterwards right? It's always an interesting thing. Is uh, His inclination was good, but at the end where it's time to be honest, he goes with the lie and breaks his father's heart. As opposed to Yehuda is the reverse. He's actually an active participant in getting Yosef sold. But in this story, he's an active participant in not doing what's right, but he does then own it and fix it.
1: The Interesting. The relationship between Ruvan and Yehuda is very interesting and, and really maybe something for another Parsha podcast. Ruvin, of course, is the oldest and should be the one who leads the family, but in fact it's Yehuda who ends up stepping up and taking responsibility and being the one who leads the family and eventually the one who merits having the Davidic monarchy come out of his lineage. What Yehuda does in this week's Parsha is that when the brothers first go down to Egypt, Yosef accuses them of being spies, takes another brother captive, Shimon has to stay behind in Egypt, they come back, they say to Yaakov, hey, we've got to go back and we have to bring Benjamin with us because that's the only condition that Yosef." said, he'll meet with us again. Yaakov says, nothing doing. They sit and wait, and they're starving. And finally, Huda turns to his father and says, send Benjamin with us. I will personally take responsibility for him. And he uses exactly the same term that Tamar uses here. Tamar says, give me a collateral, give me an eravon. And Judah says, anochi e'ervenu miadite Vakshenu. I will be a collateral for him. I will be a guarantor for him. You can demand him from my hand.
0: So you could argue then, both in the story and Yibum itself, that the reason the Torah gives us a choice is because it wants to see growth, right? In other words, when you don't have any choice, the growth isn't obvious. I don't mean to imply that things that are commanded can't bring growth, but when, at the end of the day, When we we don't know, none of us know each other's motivations when we have no choice. I could either pay my taxes happily and willingly to support my government, or I could pay taxes I don't want to go to prison. No one could know, except for me, what my mindset is. And so here you have this mitzvah, and I'm almost thinking if I was going to stretch it, the mitzvah is related in Devarim came that way because of what Yehuda did with Tamar, that I'm, I'm sort of hypothetically suggesting that maybe there was a time in our history where it wasn't optional. You had to do it. There was no halitza.
1: That's fascinating. And then suggestion.
0: God says, well, wait a minute, God, or I don't want to impose my religious views on all listeners. Author, editor, whatever you're comfortable with, says, you know what? The power of this mitzvah, as we know from Yehuda, is the choice to engage it. So let's give every future... Surviving brother in the people of Israel, the same opportunity that uh, Yehuda had to choose to take on the responsibility and put yourself in that situation and literally be there for your brother in the most ultimate way. And Yibam is a strange mitzvah; we don't really relate to it nowadays, and as I said, we don't really
1: practice it nowadays. But as you said, I think it has an incredibly powerful message about how mitzvot are supposed to bring about personal growth and how mitzvot are supposed to challenge us to make the choices that we know we should be making and to go beyond ourselves.
0: So I feel compelled to ask, in these days, this issue of the individual stepping up to take responsibility on behalf of the Klal, the wider population, his people, his nation, how is that resonating with you these days? I, for me, I think in these days,
1: uh, as you said, uh, we're still in the middle of a war. And what's been most remarkable it's about Israeli society and I think Jewish society worldwide has been the way that people have just stepped outside themselves, put aside their own needs, their own schedules, and realized that we're all part of one people and we all have a responsibility to each other. And I think even going beyond the Jewish community, people have realized that when somebody else is taken captive, we all have a moral responsibility and we have to put aside all sorts of other personal concerns to make sure that the hostages come back
0: alive. And that Israel can live in security, right? In other words, this sense of that we are confronting an enemy that we cannot negotiate with, we cannot buy off, we cannot offer things to. Uh, we're confronted with an enemy that uh, wants to destroy us, right? Hamas just wants to destroy us. I think in a certain way, that's what this all proved in a very scary, fundamental way.
1: And you've seen Israeli society just come together, realizing that we have this existential threat and people just volunteering in incredible ways. People volunteering to be drafted, uh, not even waiting for the draft letter, just coming to the front and saying, here I am. The rest of Israeli society, the rest of uh, Jewish society worldwide, just wanting to give and give more and give more.
0: You know, it makes me think that this idea of this sense of responsibility and belonging, and it, it does make me wonder about a lot of Jews out there. Is this a moment where they're feeling pushed to figure out for themselves how much does this familial, national, whatever term you want to use, identity, does it pull at them? And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that, like where we might be headed in terms of Jews all over the world, from our students at Pardes all the way out to, you know, as far as you want to stretch.
1: Yehuda is an incredible model. And yes, I think there's something that we can relate to in terms of this transformative moment. Yehuda doesn't come to this naturally, he doesn't necessarily come to it on his own, but when faced with the choice, Tamar says, ha care na please recognize, and she forces him to realize that his identity is wrapped up in this episode. She forces him to see his cloak and his staff and his signet ring, which again were the symbols of identity in the ancient world. This is who you are, she's saying to him. In that moment, the choice that he makes in that moment confronted with something completely out of the blue is what transforms him as a character.
0: You think it's too far to push it then? that uh, Jews are having worldwide a Hakarna moment? Are they recognizing that this is who they are? and therefore once you recognize that sort of taking on that responsibility, or you know they have a choice, which I understand. I don't mean to, to sound overly you know judgmental to say no, that's really not who I am. Uh, there are other things that come first.
1: Everybody has a choice. I think you who does. His development as a character would not be as powerful if he didn't have a choice. But the bottom line is he chooses correctly. And he sees the growth in himself, and we, the readers, see the growth in him, and he has that posterity for the rest of history.
0: And we're named after him, right? We are Yehudim. That's right. We are the Yehudim.
1: We are not the Josephites. One more thought. Uh, I can't remember where I saw this insight, but that Yehuda, in some ways, is the first person in the entire tower to do tshuva. He does something wrong. Tamar confronts him, and he says, you're right, and he makes good. And in some ways, therefore, that is the correction of the beginning of Sefer Brashit, where God confronts the first man and woman who defied the first mitzvah and ate from the tree. And rather than saying, you're right, I did something wrong, they both blame somebody else. And we've waited until now for Yehuda to fess up and say yes. And therefore, Yehuda, in some ways, redeems the book of Brashit and brings us to a new era, I think, in, in moral history.
0: And just to broaden it out, I realize it's going to sound a little historianic, but I'll, I'll say it anyways. I don't want to be misquoted as saying I'm looking for quote-unquote theological reasons about why October 7th happened. I'm not. It's a horror, and I can't, I can't even make space for it yet fully in my connection with God and thinking about God. But this idea that our society was split and people were at each other's throats and accusing each other of the most terrible things, And then this happens, and suddenly everyone is in a different moment, this awareness of, I guess we are all deeply, profoundly connected. We are all profoundly responsible for each other. No one is saying, I'm only interested in helping or saving the life of the people who agree with me on judicial reform or who didn't vote for Bibi. No one's thinking politics. No one's thinking any of that. And there's this sense that the awfulness created this other sense. It brought to the surface, maybe, this recognition, to use your word of hakerna, right, that uh, underneath all that, there is something else that we are truly connected to.
1: Yeah, we never know why things happen. I completely agree with you that trying to make sense of this horrific tragedy is, I don't know if we'll ever be able to, but one way of making sense is saying, I don't know why it happened, but I can take it forward. I can understand what I'm going to do with the feelings that were thrust upon me, with the tragedy that was thrust upon all of us as a nation.
0: And I think just to push this a little bit further, Jews not living here then are then confronting a dilemma, especially those Jews who may have been on the fence or feel somewhat connected, but not fully connected, partially connected, have questions about it, view Israel as a Jewish homeland, but, you know, for political reasons or all sorts of reasons, they don't feel connected to it. All those things, I feel like in a certain way, maybe we are in a moment where they too, on some profound level, are going to have to sort of, own where they want to be and where they belong
1: to really figure out a sense of identity i think that's true
0: and of course that's both on a certain level it sounds challenging and on another level it's scary because i know not everyone's going to choose the way i would want them to choose but that is the nature of the power of choosing And that, from what you're telling us, that's how growth and character are built, is through choosing.
1: When the brothers are confronting Yaakov to say, send us to Egypt with Benjamin, Yehuda does not step forward right away. It takes even more time and more energy and more reaching inside himself to reach that moment. So it's not an automatic thing. It's not something that just happens overnight. We see Yehuda as a character who develops in real time. And I think that's something that we can really take to heart at this moment of transformation.
0: So I guess our takeaway for today, one takeaway among many, is that whatever crisis we are in, we have to figure out in some level how we're going to choose to respond and how those choices reflect really who we are, who we aspire to be. And uh, it sounds like you're telling us this is a moment, Yehuda's moment in Bresheet is a moment like that. And it basically maintains his line, both in terms of Tamar does have this child, this child, as we know, she has twins, if I'm remembering correctly. And those twins are ultimately one of them. parrots, is the ultimate, uh, what's the term, forebear, is that the term, of King David, right? In other words, that we are witnessing the future of uh, the Israelites and the Jews literally as a product of that moment. You know, if she's put to death, those babies don't live and if he chooses to do what's right that gives life and then he literally chooses to give life to his entire people and to his nation and on a less obvious and obviously less dramatic way we're being confronted with that choice also what are we willing to sacrifice or give up or deal with or live with or accept and contribute in order to give life to this people whose life i realize i'm going on for a long time here i apologize whose life does not seem as easily guaranteed as it did a month and a half ago. The sense that actually, no, if we are going to continue as a people, we're going to have to work at it.
1: There is a moment in the Midrash where Tamar, the, the Midrash kind of puts a few more words in Tamar's mouth, and she actually appeals to Hudan exactly those words and says, you have my life and the life of my two unborn children in your hands. What are you going to do? The fact that Yehuda's line becomes so critical in Jewish history, right, the line of King David, shows the powerful nature of one act and the way that it can create worlds. Generations down the line, and really, this becomes a central. It's such a side story within the the Yosef narrative, but it becomes in some ways even a more pivotal story within the scope of Jewish history.
0: So, to be a Jew means to realize your choices can change history. Your yes. individual choices. And in a nutshell, I would say that is in some ways what the Bible is about. Okay. Well, thank you. Challenging and moving. And again, we both hope and pray that by the time you are listening to this. The hostages have been returned to their families. Security has been returned to the state of Israel. And we are looking forward to happier, better times. And if that hasn't happened yet, keep hoping and praying that it will happen as soon as possible. Daniel, thank you very much for joining. And you too. Uh, Everyone else, uh, have a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.